You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Fagan. Dr. Fagan, a graduate of West Point and Duke University, has had a distinguished career in the military, in academic medicine, in research, and in sports medicine. However, Dr. Fagan now has turned to volunteerism. Dr. Fagan, what made you make this particular change? Right, well, uh, even before I uh, retired, I had been doing volunteerism, but it, uh, and I've had to think about why I did it even when I was active in other fields. Uh, but I think I can, I think it's the back, my background, uh, I can answer your question, uh, so long as we don't tie it to retirement. That's fine. I don't think you're retired. <laughs> That's right. It's really a change in career. <laughs> change in career. I'll accept that. Yeah. You know, as I was thinking back, and I appreciate you, your introduction, and also you making me think back a little bit. In medical school, we form our habits. And uh, at Duke in the early 60s, where I went to medical school, we had, in that rural state of that era, outlying clinics that were seemed to be critical to the health care of the state. And so as medical students, we went to outlying clinics with the faculty. And I think I was probably more impressed by those than I realized I enjoyed them, and I think maybe that that service early in my medical school career formed the habits that I expected of myself later. What countries in particular have you volunteered as an orthopedic surgeon? I suppose the first one was when I was serving in Vietnam in 1967, and we had several volunteer efforts there that were meaningful, at least to us. And then subsequently, uh, those were gratifying, so subsequently led back that uh, I volunteered for uh, an outfit called Operation Blessing under Pat Robertson. Went to Kazakhstan and Panama with them, and then I went with uh, Franklin Graham's World Gospel Medicine to Kenya and worked. And then I've worked uh, for the last five years in Cuba. Was there anything unique about any of these countries as far as trying to practice medicine? Oh, they were they were all a challenge, and I enjoyed the challenge. But it's a challenge, Maury, as you know, in the United States sometimes. Absolutely. So, uh, we just uh, certainly didn't plan or dream of practicing the same level that we might choose at the university, but having been in private practice in a small town for 10 years, you know, I had to change goals for that also and expectations. So it, it, I haven't had much trouble changing, just so you don't have to compromise good care. And in each situation I was in, there were you could give good care, providing you limited your patient selection to those that you could give good care to. You know, I'm struck by the comment that you made that you went to an underserved area in North Carolina, and this motivated you to return to an underserved area. I wonder if our present medical schools are turning our medical students towards servicing the underserved in the United States, so much so that they will return to underserved areas in the United States. Right. Well, I wish I could speak for more medical schools, but I just retired from 10 years on the faculty of Duke, which I knew well from going to medical school there. And over the last 10 years at Duke, uh, I saw several initiatives that heartened me. Uh, One is we've got now a formal agreement with Singapore to exchange faculty and medical students with opportunities for service. And in addition to that, they've got some other opportunities. We arranged one in Germany, though that certainly is not an underserved area. It's a different kind of service. So I think that those type of agreements, and then, of course, within our own borders, the opportunities for serving uh, on the Indian reservations and so on like that are are quite ample if we look into them. And hopefully we'll get the message through to medical students more effectively that they can serve 
and start serving while in medical school. I was really thinking of the inner cities of our great country, where there are so many immigrants, some registered, some not, that are struggling to get health care. Yes, I agree. And to that extent, uh, as you probably know, I did 10 years of private practice in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And thanks to the efforts of Dr. Robert Voles and some others, they got a law passed in the Wyoming legislature that if you were doing volunteer service in an area that was underserved in the Wyoming community, then you were freed from some of the liabilities of malpractice. And so we now have some underserved clinics in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and other areas for the population that needs that. I'm very, very impressed with those efforts. Your experience in Kenya, did it meet your expectations? Ah, <laughs> that exceeded my expectations. <laughs> and uh, in saying that, I think partly I owe that to uh, Franklin Graham's organization of that hospital, Tenwick Hospital. Second was the staff of that hospital is a dedicated Christian missionary staff who are there at the call, so to speak, and stay as long as they are called to be there. So there was a permanency and a commitment there that I had never seen before. And we were the visitors that you know came over and helped under their supervision in Egypt. And then I think another part of that was they get donations from the United States and other countries, so they have an amazing amount of equipment. And sometimes you had to go to the warehouse and search it out. It wasn't just delivered to you. But it was amazing what was actually there in the warehouse if you needed it for a complex orthopedic case. Did you have a problem with translations, not understanding the dialects? Ah, uh, yes, Swahili. <laughs> we took care of two tribes here predominantly, the Kipsigis tribe and the Maasai tribe, and uh, both of them communicate in Swahili. And we did have translators. I couldn't master Swahili. <laughs> The, the native sign language went a long way. Were there any really conflicts between their, shall we say, medicine men, getting them to accept your type of medicine as opposed to the medicine that they were used to in their rural villages? Well, fortunately, this permanent staff at Tenwick has a great relationship with the surrounding communities and the medical men. And I, I learned about the importance of a tribe from their organization, and I also learned about the role of the medicine man within the tribe and was uh, absolutely certain that I wanted to respect his position. And although our referrals were not by phone or necessarily eye to eye, I could tell which patients they referred because they knew that it was something more difficult than they wanted to handle, like a difficult fracture. So there was a certain relationship and and caring and sharing, so to speak, between the medicine man and ourselves and and our common patients. Were there any unusual fractures Uh, And this is kind of a leading question because I've read your article, Volunteering in Africa, which appeared in the orthopedic journals, and I was struck by certainly a certain type of fracture that I don't think anybody in the United States has seen. Right. That was my favorite favorite case or most memorable because I was called to the emergency room and I saw the x-ray of the patient I was going to see first and both bones of the forearm had maybe a total of 40 fractures and yet... The, the fractures were not displaced. They were in perfect alignment. And then I went to see the patient, and unfortunately, the translator was busy with a much more severely injured patient. So I didn't have the translator available, though I knew he was in the room. There, the patient was lying there with uh, multiple marks on his arm that were obviously penetrating to the fracture. So the patient had to go to surgery because these were open fractures and needed to be cleaned out. But I couldn't figure what could give you a total of 40 fractures in both bones and not change the alignment of the limb. And as we were heading for the emergency room the in the operating room, finally the translator showed up and he said, oh, oh, he said, well, Mr. Jones uh, was herding his goats and a leopard jumped out of the tree and 
bit him on the arm. So that was the first and only leopard bite I've ever taken care of. It gave me some idea of the strength of the jaw of a leopard that could create that much damage in one, one bite. Does insurance cover that? <laughs> or is there an exclusion? <laughs> you know, I wish I knew, because actually... At that hospital, given World Gospel Mission organization and so on, there was a certain fee for service. I never saw a patient turned away, and of course we were volunteers, not paid. But I know that they interviewed, and whether they got corn and tea from the patients or whether they got cash, I don't know. But uh, I do know that there was an expectation of quid pro quo to a certain extent. How did you feel about the nursing staff, anesthesia, blood products, all the other kinds of support that an orthopedic surgeon needs. Yes, and, and uh, orthopedic surgeons are expensive in terms of support that way. Uh, and I did want to mention that about the Tenwick Hospital because we had absolutely excellent nursing, particularly nursing. Anesthesia was outstanding. Uh, we didn't HIV test all patients, but generally it was felt that they had an HIV infection rate of 25% from previous testing. So we were certainly careful about HIV. We could get blood uh, to a certain extent, most of it to volunteer fresh donations. And it was cross-matched and screened. So uh, generally, it, it, was a, it was support that was equal to, say, my experience in the United States of, say, 20 years ago. So, uh, and yet it was you know, certainly adequate to, to do good medicine. With HIV so rampant in Africa, did this particular hospital practice everything they could to prevent the spread? Yes. They're very careful about that, and I appreciated that because I had come from an institution where we were careful about it also. Did you see patients that you had to operate on who had malaria, had tuberculosis? Uh, tuberculosis was common. I don't believe that I had to operate on any orthopedically that had active tuberculosis. Malaria was very common, and uh, we ourselves used sleeping tents and uh, took anti-malarials, and then frequently, postoperatively, even the stress of surgery would precipitate a malaria attack. So I was used to looking at a fever postoperatively and wondering whether it was an early infection or a recurrence of the existing malaria. It's a serious problem. So here's a surgeon who's used to always worrying about spiking temperature postoperatively, and it might not have been a wound infection, but malaria. Exactly. What was the pre- and post-op care like after your patients came under your care? You know, it was as good and complete as in the United States in the sense that we made rounds twice a day on the patients and with great nursing staff and uh, the open-bed wards that they have over there with families in attendance actually makes care more efficient and uh, easier, I think, <laughs> than, say, private rooms as we experience them here because one patient can go help another one or the nursing staff can care for more patients you know, with the same problems easier. So post-op nursing care was really just, just excellent and it was very good communication between the surgeon and the nursing personnel. Nutritionally, were these patients in positive nitrogen balance when you had to operate on them? Uh, Maury, that, that's a good question, too, and I appreciate that. I was impressed with the nutrition of the two tribes we took care of, yes. The difference between the tribes was interesting in that the Maasai, everyone knows, are a beautiful people, and they were all seen to be well-nourished and uh, well-muscled, etc. The Kipsigis were not so blessed in that their average height is maybe five feet four, but their nutrition, too, was was adequate, but they weren't as well muscled. They had, they were just, you know, a different composition than, say, the Maasai. That didn't really come into effect very often in terms of medical care, but uh, it was something that was interesting to me. They have completely different diets. The end of your article deals with living the dream. Could you tell me what that means to you? Now we are getting to retirement. There was a beautiful poem written by General Douglas MacArthur for his son, 
and it was enti- it starts off, give me a boy who will bide his time, meaning that you can't expect all your rewards too soon or too early in life. And so I had put off a lot of things because I was focused on my profession and orthopedics and achieving what I could. So I was ready for the retirement thing, and that was that I scheduled myself to work these three months in Kenya. And I also had uh, planned, since I was a pilot and I enjoyed flying a lot, I had planned to see if I could fly from my retirement at Duke University in North Carolina to Africa to work. And so those two things were coupled into a living the dream. I want to thank Dr. Fagan. We've really enjoyed talking with you. He has been our guest, and we've been discussing volunteerism. I am Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.